The scripture for today's teaching comes from the Gospel of Matthew. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat be beside the sea, and the great crowds gathered about him, so they got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and in turn, I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and un understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Great to be back uh, with you. My name is Rankin. I've been away 
for a while, but it's, it's wonderful to be home. Well, this is a hard parable, isn't it? I wonder if, I wonder if you hear the sadness in this parable. Uh, do you ever uh, feel yourself so busy, so stretched, so pulled in so many different directions that despite your best intentions, you just can't ever seem to find the time to sit quietly and just listen? Is that even possible in Los Angeles? You know, to find silence and listen? Or do you ever find yourself so caught up in what uh, Jesus in this parable calls the cares of the world, those thorns, that those thorns just choke out the life that you'd like to be living? Well, hearing this parable and, and hearing uh, Jesus' own explanation, and this is one of the few parables that Jesus uh, explains, uh, it sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? Doesn't it evoke uh, names and faces of, of people we love, perhaps even ourselves? Uh, there, there's a person, uh, probably in his or her uh, 20s, grew up in the church, uh, knows all the stories, memorized all the verses, and at one time there was great passion in her life, but something's been lost. She stopped attending church a while ago and, and, and maybe even stopped identifying as a Christian. Well, that person's in this parable. As well as uh, the person, you're not quite sure what happened to you, but sometime around your 30s, your 40s, when it came to God and your relationship with God, something, something changed. You stopped, you stopped feeling deeply. You stopped praying. And you lost something and you, you don't know how to get back. Uh, what are we doing here? We, we've been spending the summer, as you know, studying the parables of Jesus. And Jesus was more than a teacher. Uh, for we who follow him, he's also our Lord. But most everyone considers Jesus the greatest teacher who ever lived. So it's worth asking, why is Jesus' preferred teaching style, his pedagogy, is the 50-cent word, why is his pedagogy uh, consisting mainly of the parable? Uh, parables are not as simple as they seem, are they? Haddon Robinson was one of the great preaching professors of the 20th century, and Dr. Robinson once said, young preachers love the parables, but older preachers have learned to fear them. Because they're not often what they seem, are they? Parables are like pieces of hard candy. They're meant to be taken in and dwelled upon for a long time, like one of Willy Wonka's uh, everlasting gobstoppers. But it's only after you turn them over again and again do they start to reveal their core. But if you just bite down on these parables the way young children sometimes do with a piece of hard candy, well, you can break your teeth. Why did Jesus speak in parables? We'll look at that today. I want us to slow down and actually spend a couple of weeks on this one parable for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, most scholars consider this the parable on the parables. It's one of the few parables that you can find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In each gospel, it's given pride of place by Jesus. And Jesus actually says in the gospel of Mark that if we don't understand this parable, he says, how then will you understand any of the parables? That's Mark 4, verse 13. Jesus is saying, if I can dare paraphrase, if you don't get me here, you're not going to get me anywhere. Why was this parable first, not only in presentation, but in importance for Jesus? But second, I want to focus on this parable because this 
captures uh, what we're after here as a church at Pacific Crossroads. It captures our vision, what we want to see happen here. It hits the bullseye of why we exist as a church in Los Angeles. And in this new season, I'm so desirous for us, all of us, to get back to this core focus. So the frame of these two weeks uh, today will be diagnosis. Diagnosis. We'll look at what this parable is about. Jesus said, a sower went out to sow, or a farmer went out to sow his seed, and it fell among four types of soil. And today we're going to focus on these four soils, for these four soils represent uh, different ways that people respond to the message of Jesus. And I believe Jesus intends this parable to be a, a diagnostic, a diagnostic tale. Jesus intends you as a listener to hear this parable and for you to ask yourself, for you to ask yourself, how is my hearing? How is your hearing? How is your heart? It may seem like a simple question. I, I assure you, it's not simple at all. How is your heart? So today we'll look at these four soils and do some diagnostic work. And then next week we'll move towards a prognosis, treatment, healing, in terms of Jesus' parable, how we move, how we get healthier, or are less encumbered by these thorns. But it's just like going to a doctor, uh, first diagnosis, then prognosis. Because just like uh, with your physical condition, someone can tell you to eat better or cut cholesterol out of your diet or start exercising more, <laughs> but until you have an arteriogram or a heart attack, <laughs> you probably won't make any uh, changes in your life. And that's true for all of us. We don't often seek help until we're compelled to see. We're compelled to see what we haven't seen before. Because make no mistake, more than a few of us are walking around more than a few of us are walking around with some very serious, even fatal, undiagnosed conditions. And ignorance is not bliss. Sometimes you can be very sick and not even know it. You can be very blind and not even see it. So today, just some diagnosis. And along the way, especially for those of you who are teachers uh, or writers or counselors, or those of you who are interested in how people learn, that is pedagogy. Uh, if you're a parent, you're interested in how people learn. In fact, if you're interested in convincing anyone of your opinion, you're interested in pedagogy or how people learn. So along the way, we'll take a brief detour and, and look at Jesus' pedagogy, Jesus' teaching style, and what it might tell us today about how to communicate the gospel in our world. Before I begin, one word of caution, this parable is not meant to be applied to the person next to you. <laughs> uh, it's meant to be very personal, very personal, and, and very present. And by present, I mean, uh, how are you doing right now? Because you can probably recognize something about yourself in each of these four soils, but this is intended to be very uh, present, not theoretical or abstract, to help you see now. So let me, let's get the scene clearly in our head. Jesus says, a sower went out to sow. And as he did, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. The path. The path spoken of is not intended, of course, to receive seed. Its function is to enable people to walk upon it. It's presumably well-worn and beaten down. It's a path. And nobody will blame a path for not being a field. 
A path serves its purpose, but a seed cannot very well take root, can it, on a well-traveled, well-worn road. And I think if we stop and pause, we recognize this path, don't we? Because it's traveled by people always on the go. Busy people, often important people. It's often uh, the people the world most admires who can be in the most danger. Because you're so busy. You're so busy doing important things. But a person who never allows himself to stop, to sit down for the soil of your heart to be tilled and broken open. Most of us, we instinctively move away from pain, but I'll tell you, there's something far worse than feeling deep pain. And that's when you're so busy, you don't allow yourself to feel any pain at all. You're just moving briskly along. And it doesn't look all that dangerous. It just looks like people going with the flow of the traffic. This is uh, the road well-traveled. And it's hard to believe, isn't it, that the most seemingly successful among us can be the very poorest people. As these, these poor, busy people. But Jesus says the birds come along and take up the seed. And in his own interpretation, in verse 19, Jesus says these are the people who hear the word. The word is sown. But Jesus says that when the word of God fails to take root, it's not merely because of a lack of religious aptitude, but because there are invisible spiritual forces that devour this seed and prevent it from taking root and germinating. We don't often talk about this. We consider ourselves to be modern, sophisticated, scientifically-minded people, but Jesus was not afraid to talk about what he calls in verse 19, the evil one. That is malevolent spiritual forces at work in the world. And in terms of this parable, that act upon your heart. That act upon your heart. So, what are these birds? Well, if you pick up your phone first thing in the morning, or you keep your phone at your bedside, or one of the first things you do when you wake up in the morning is check your email, if people read email anymore, or, or Instagram, or text, or Twitter, uh, then do you know what you're doing? You, you are calling for those birds to come down and devour the food that you need that day. Before you ever get out of bed, oh, those birds come circling. Those birds come circling and they come circling in the form of things to do. Things to do that day. And it's all about which voice you're going to listen to. And every day the battle starts again. Do you know that's actually the most important moment of your day is the moment you wake up before you ever get out of bed? Because it's so easy, isn't it? Familiar and well-worn to go about the path you usually travel. It's smooth. It's gradual. And even if you read the Bible or pray, you know those birds are circling. Some of us like to, to grab a bar before we go out the door, but you can't rush through this. You can't rush through listening to Jesus like grabbing a bite on your way out the door. It takes deliberate training. Training to sit quietly, sit in the presence of God to soak in his word and digest it each day. And each day the battle begins again. You say, oh, I, I just, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to meditate upon the word of God, but that's not true. The problem is not that we're not able to meditate. We understand very well what it's like to be fixated upon something. We know how to fix upon something, but that's usually our screens. 
Why do we do that? Why can you hear, why can I hear a hundred well-meaning teachers tell us not to reach for our phone first thing in the morning, but why is that habit so hard for us to break? Well, 2,400 years ago, Plato wrote, we can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark. The real tragedy of life is when people are afraid of the light. But you have to know this about yourself, that we are, that we resist this light. And so we willingly summon these birds. We welcome them. We welcome these distractions. The problem is, again, not that we can't focus. In fact, the spirit of worry and anxiety is its own form of meditation. We call to mind these dreadful pictures of what might happen to us or what we need to happen that day. See, don't you see how often you and I call down these birds? Like some inaudible supersonic whistle, we call down these birds to devour the word we need to hear that day. And is it any wonder, is it any wonder today that the seed of the word of God seems dry and sterile? That so many in the church say, I don't feel anything when it comes to God. Why? Because we surround ourselves with a tempest of busyness and noise. So how could we possibly hear the still small voice that comes on the wings of a dove? How can we hear? How can we hear? But this parable has always been a challenge, isn't it? Couldn't this be one of the main reasons that Jesus spoke in parables? I mean, Jesus could have just said, God loves you no matter what, and no matter what you've done, we'll always welcome you home. But instead, Jesus says, a certain man had two sons. Jesus could have said, love the stranger. But instead, he told a parable about a man falling into a ditch and a good Samaritan who came by to help him. Stories invite you in. They get straight to the heart, and that's what parables do, though not all parables are stories. Some are allegories, like, like this parable, the parable of the sower. Some are similes, metaphors. The kingdom of God is like a net. The kingdom of God is like a banquet. And, but, and some are these marvelous stories, uh, like the prodigal son of the Good Samaritan, that the more we study them, turn upside down, our expectations about the way the world is supposed to work. You have to enter into these parables. And I'm, I'm not at all implying that we need scholars to help us understand these parables. Uh, quite the opposite. These parables are drawn from the world of everyday life to engage the ordinary imagination. Have you ever noticed the, par the characters in these parables? They're never given names. It's just a certain woman or a certain man. And they describe scenes, even though they're taken uh, from the world of the first century, they describe scenes that are familiar to us even today. I mean, if you lost something precious to you, you would scour your apartment or your home to find it, and you'd rejoice when you did. These parables invite you in, but again, the more you turn them over, the more elusive, the more elusive they sometimes become. And this is confusing, isn't it? Because Jesus came to reveal the truth about God. So why would the one whom everyone acknowledges came to reveal, why would he use as his primary teaching method that which hides, that which conceals, that which is not immediately evident? Even his disciples ask him in, this, in, in, our, in verse 10, why do you speak in parables? Well, think of the compliment Jesus pays his listeners compared to, to most preachers, including myself. 
He doesn't spoon feed with simplistic explanations. He doesn't give three points with tidy summaries. He simply tells his parable and he says, go and learn what this means. You know, Toni Morrison died recently. And the columnist Russ, Ross Douthat wondered aloud about the death of the great American novel, that people aren't reading like they used to, that we've lost our appetite, Douthat says, for sustained reflection. And while that may be true, I'd wager most people in Jesus' day didn't want to think all that deeply either. But it does raise the question, why did Jesus use the parable as his main teaching style? Well, had Jesus come to the religious leaders of his day and, and, and say flat out, I and the son, both barrels blazing, I and the Son of God, kneel, the first shall be last. But instead, what does he do? He tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector going into the temple to pray. See, parables, if they're going to have any effect on you, they demand your personal individual participation. You have to enter into the story. Other people, not even well-meaning pastors or teachers, can do the most important work for you. I believe that's what Jesus means when he says in verse 12, to the one who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And then in verses 14 and 15, Jesus quotes these words from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, about people hearing but never understanding seeing but never perceiving, lest, he says, they should understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. He's not simply talking about the mystery of why people sometimes respond to God and others don't. He's talking about our responsibility and the choice we have as listeners, as listeners to Jesus, of how we will choose to hear and over time, the effect that has on our own hearts. That's why this parable about how people hear is really the parable about all the parables. It's really the parable about all the teaching of Jesus. Are you willing to stop? Are you willing to stop and sit down and listen and wrestle through what Jesus is saying to you about reality? Because if you're not willing to sit down and think deeply about your life, hearing the words, simply hearing the words, God loves you no matter what, those words are just going to wash over you. Those words are just going to wash over you. They're never going to get in and change your life. Educational theorists today have done a great deal of work about what makes for transformational teaching. And if you're a teacher, you'll be glad to know it has nothing to do with teacher evaluations. But in his wonderful book, Range, David Epstein cites a study done over several years at the Air Force Academy. This is an amazing study that compared first-year math teacher evaluations, first-year math teacher evaluations, with the subsequent performance of those students in higher-level math courses. And what they discovered was that some of the teachers who first year were the most highly ranked, most highly rated, their students often did the poorest in the future. The, the teachers were, were, were well-liked, presumably, because they were easy and accessible. Students got A's, but the students were not prepared for higher level, more demanding math. But some of the teachers who were most criticized for being too hard, their students, on the other hand, were much better prepared for what was coming down the road. And educational theorists today have come up with the term desirable difficulty. Desirable difficulty to describe the situation in which a student learns best. 
A desirable difficulty is a learning task that requires considerable but desirable amount of effort. Considerable but desirable amount of effort, which thereby will improve his or her long-term performance. That is, students learn best when they're challenged. Desirable difficulty. And they don't often like it in the short term or enjoy it. And the upshot, if you're a writer, a teacher, a counselor, or a parent, is that there's no way to learn well that's not slow and deliberate and demanding. But this is very much at odds, isn't it, with our fast-paced, just give me the hack, just keep it simple world. Now, desirable difficulty is hailed as cutting-edge research in educational theory today, but can't you see the very heart of the principle in Jesus' own teaching method? I mean, isn't the heart of desirable difficulty right here in these parables? Jesus could have just told us the answer. Just memorize the answer, just fill in the blank. But that will never do the deep work necessary that will produce transformation over time in your life. And that's what a parable does. See, Jesus' method suits his message. His method suits his message. It has to get in and do its deep work. So let me give you a definition of a parable. Here's probably the most famous definition from a scholar named C.H. Dodd. He said, a parable is a metaphor or simile. It's just a comparison. The kingdom of God is like. It's a metaphor or simile drawn from the nature of everyday life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness. Like we, we think we understand it, but then it takes a turn we weren't expecting. Arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt of its precise application in order to tease the mind into active thought. See, and there's the key. Leaving the mind in sufficient doubt of its precise application in order to tease your mind into active thought. Soren Kierkegaard called this indirect communication. And he says, of course, there's a place to proclaim the gospel clearly and directly. But Kierkegaard was writing in an environment where everyone thought they were a Christian. And there was so much shallowness in the church. And this so concerned him. How do, how do you communicate the gospel in a context like that? And that was 200 years ago. It's even more true today. Here's what Kierkegaard wrote. He said, a direct attack only strengthens a person in his or her illusion. And at the same time, it embitters him. There's nothing that requires such gentle handling as an illusion if one wishes to dispel it. Now, if you didn't catch all that, he said this uh, about 200 years ago. But again, if you're into uh, uh, social psychology or how people learn, uh, this is everywhere today. This is everywhere today. Our best scientists confirming it. That if you've already made up your mind about something, if you've already made up your mind about something, especially if it's very important to you, then any evidence contrary to your opinion often just makes you double down. Even in the face of incontrovertible evidence. And we, we like to think that we're open-minded, rational people. We are not. Scientists are learning that it's, that is not how our brain works. Our brains are more often like confirmation bias machines. That's what your brain, your, your brain is like a stubborn old man. <laughs> we, we are set in our patterns, and if we're going to get past those, those defenses, Kierkegaard understood because he learned from his master, indirect communication is often the most effective. 
So instead of telling your best friend, I hate that you're always late. It's so inconsiderate. You might consider telling a story <laughs> about someone who's always late and how much that pains the people around him. And your friend will probably say, I know, I hate people like that. And you'll bite your tongue because you know a direct attack only strengthens a person in his or her illusion. You see what I'm saying in this, this a long detour? The parables require what all of life with God requires. Slowing down. And it's slowing down in this very busy, fast-paced, frenetic lives that we have for ourselves. Slowing down. There are no shortcuts to deep learning. Slowing down. Listening. Reflecting. See, parables teach and reveal, but they do so in this artistic way. To keep the message from being immediately clear without further reflection, but they do this to win over the listener. Transformational learning. Because make no mistake, Jesus is more than a teacher. These parables are intended to bring you to a moment of crisis, a crisis of decision. Will you listen to what Jesus is telling you about the nature of reality, or will you listen to other voices? And these parables seem so benign and gentle. They are very threatening, but they do it in a very non-threatening way, indirect. Kierkegaard called it wounding from behind. T.F. Torrance put it, Jesus deliberately concealed the word in parables lest men and women against their will should be forced to acknowledge the kingdom. And yet he gave enough light to convince. He's saying that Jesus is targeting the heart, which is what we live out of. Not just our mind, we live out of the hearts. All of our decisions are decisions of the heart. And probably this addresses a question that you've, you've always asked yourself. I mean, God, why is it so hard sometimes to believe. Why don't you just paint in the sky, I am here, doubt no more. And Torrance says that might convince the mind, but it's the heart, it's your heart that must be transformed. See, do you understand is a way of asking, are you willing to stand under Jesus' words? It's a way of life. Stand under, listen to him, obey him. That will be done. Jesus is not trying to hide, but he is, especially in this parable, depicting the dire consequences over time of people who refuse to listen. Just refuse to listen. Seeing they won't perceive. Hearing they won't understand. Lest they turn and be healed. And that's what this parable is asking us. Do you want to be healed? How is your hearing? Because you are listening to someone. But whose voices are you listening to? Which voice? Whose values? Whose expectations? Christianity is, is very simple, isn't it? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's very simple. But if you want to grow up, it's very deep, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about nothing less than the transformation of your whole way of life. A rethinking, Jesus' word for this is repentance, of your entire way of being. I mean, how could this not require deep, sustained reflection? Because once the word of the gospel takes root in your life, it does become very unsettling. It tills the soil, and it needs to, because you are uprooting very entrenched patterns of thinking that you've had for most of your life. The gospel challenges your core assumptions about the way life works. 
The way you've always done things, it tells you, no, the way up is down. The way up is down. The way to the peace you're seeking is through tribulation. The way to the strength you want is through facing your weaknesses, not avoiding them. But that is so hard for us to internalize. And doesn't this parable explain why there are so many shallow, superficial, immature church people? And notice I did not say Christians. Because we're nearing the end of our time today, and I haven't even touched upon the second, third, and fourth soils. Well, the fourth soil is clear enough. It's those who hear the word and understand it. He indeed bears fruit, Jesus says. And here's a note of encouragement. That there is such a thing in Jesus' kingdom of faithful, fruitful hearts. So you keep going. But for me, as a reader, here's where it gets interesting. I mean, the first soil is obviously people outside God's kingdom. And the fourth soil is people obviously inside. But it's these middle two soils. It's these middle two soils. Who are these people? Are they Christians? Just not as mature as they might like to be? And I suggest that this parable does not fit our theological categories, does it? For if you read the parable closely, and I believe Jesus intends us to, in the second and third soils, notice, the word was not only heard, it was accepted. The word took root, meaning here are men and women who have heard the gospel and have in a very real sense accepted it. Jesus says in verse 20 of the second soil, here are people who received it with joy. In Palestine, it was not uncommon for there to be a fertile skin of earth over a shelf of limestone rock, so the soil had little depth. But if a seed fell there, because it was so fertile, a, a, a seed would sprout up quickly, but it would lack the roots and nourishment to withstand the scorching heat of the day. And again in verse 20, Jesus says, This soil represents those who hear the word and immediately receive it with joy, yet he has no root. No root. But notice Jesus says, But endures for a while. But endures for a while. Yet when tribulation or persecution arises, he falls away. You become a Christian. Professing Christian, you go to church and maybe endure for a long while. But no one ever sat down with you to tell you how hard it was going to be sometimes. The scorching heat. And how people, especially church people, were going to let you down. Which this parable anticipates, by the way. The second soil is the soil of unmet expectations. I'll never forget one of the best teachings I've ever heard on this parable. It's by a Bible teacher at my old church, uh, Harriet Bond, who pointed out that the sun rose, the sun rose, and she noted plants can't grow without sun, and she said the sun hardens the mud and it melts the chocolate. It hardens the mud and it melts the chocolate. Same sun, same event, same circumstances, same conditions, the only difference is what that sun hits. The only difference is your response. See, the trouble will come, she said, but are you mud or are you chocolate? That hardship in your life will take you down one of two roads. It will either harden you into mud or it will soften you like chocolate. And mud, of course, is the way of bitterness. It is the way of resentment. It is the way of blame shifting, lack of forgiveness, malice. But chocolate is a pliable, soft, open, forgiving, compassionate heart. And the proof that you've forgiven is you wish well. You wish well for those who've hurt you. 
Our churches are full of people who've had an emotional experience with God or walked an aisle, perhaps for a long season, endures for a while, and that can be years. But the gospel doesn't do its deep work. And the test will come in how you navigate the scorching trials. Mud or chocolate? Mud or chocolate? The great, the great preacher Helmut Tielicke said, It would have been better for that person if you had heard nothing at all. I love how he puts it. He said, A salty pagan, full of the juices of life, is a hundred times dearer to God and more attractive to other people than one who knows the Bible, who goes to church regularly, but in whom we see very little death of self. Whoa. Which brings us to this third soil. Verse 7. Jesus says, Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it. This is the person, Jesus says, who hears the word, but he says, But the cares of this world, the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke it out, and it proves unfruitful. I don't know about you, but this is the scariest group for me. Because this is us, to quote Jordan Peele. <laughs> a parabolic filmmaker. This is us. This is the church people. Because we all have thorns in our lives, but these are men and women for whom Jesus is not your root ultimate concern. Rather, he is merely a part of the plant that is your life. These are the people for whom church, for whom Jesus has a place, and perhaps an important place, but Jesus is not your ultimate concern. This is the man who says, God, you can have everything, but to whom Jesus says, you still lack one thing. So there's one thing you won't give up. There's one thing you won't give up. So you can't have that. Maybe it's an unforgiving spirit. Maybe it's a life of radical generosity. And when the average Christian gives away 2 to 3% of his income, it's hard not to conclude that thorns are choking out the vitality of the Western church. But these are people in the church for years, decades, perhaps all their lives. But in terms of Jesus' parable, they've not been born of what Peter calls imperishable seed. The majority of interpreters throughout history did not believe these second and third soil hearers and acceptors were in fact people who truly knew Jesus. And yet, and yet, these soils seem to describe many, if not most, of us. It's challenging, isn't it? These thorns, these cares of the world. Jesus says in verse 22, the deceitfulness of riches. Why do you think he pairs those, those words together? The deceitfulness of riches. Because more than anything, riches deceive us into thinking we can find our security, our trust in something apart from Jesus. And this is hard because life does have so many anxieties and some, so many cares. And it's doubly hard because these thorns are most often good things. These thorns are most often worth your attention. This is your career. This is your family, your relationships. But these thorns distract us from the most important thing. The more important thing. Standing under Jesus' words each day. Obeying him, listening to him. Thy will be done. To stand under his word does not mean that we don't have rocks or thorns or birds in our lives. Of course we do. We all have anxious cares. Calvin said, our hearts are a veritable forest of thorns. Jesus doesn't say that this soil has no thorns. The fourth soil. The birds still circle. 
But it means we face these anxious cares, whether it's your work, your relationships, your future, your health, or the health of someone you love. You face these thorns and you bring them to the one who can help you. You say, Jesus, thy will be done, and in thy will is my peace. It means we never get calloused enough to walk through these thorns on our own. You stay pliable. You stay open. You stay, you stay soft. You become what Graham Greene once called the constant gardener. You're a man or woman for whose the, these thorns greatly concern you. See, if the, if the thorns concern you, that's proof that you are of the fourth and fertile and fruitful soil. When I was away one of these weeks, I spoke at a conference in Florida. Uh, many nights, many hundreds of people, uh, several nights in a row, and at the end of the last night, a man came up to me. And I'd never met him, of course. He had tears in his eyes. And he reached in his pocket, and he pulled out this coin. He said, I want you to have this. He's crying. It's a stranger, tears in his face. I'd never seen a coin like this before, and I noticed it had the, the 13 on it, Roman numerals. He goes, I got this chip yesterday. 13 years sober. Because I want you to always remember there are people like me listening to you. They said, I want you to remember that I have to fight hard. Very, I have to fight hard every day. But the joy is deep. This is a man who understands. It's the people not concerned that concern me. It's the people who think this parable is not about you, who are not concerned about the thorns in your life. We have our leadership retreat this weekend, and our speaker, she said, it's the people who don't think they're blind who are most to be pitied. She said, you can't see spiritually unless you admit you tend to be blind. So what about you? What about the thorns in your life? This parable teaches us that the greatest enemy for the health of your soul is not that which seems evil and poisonous, but that which seems good and pleasurable that these can easily take over a hunger for God. And when they do, one writer puts it, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Why almost incurable? Because you don't think it's you. You don't think it's you. But I believe Jesus intends this parable to be a warning, a warning to all of us because he cares about us, especially the one who preaches. I agree with John Calvin that the imagery of this parable does not permit an interpretation that equates the second and third soils with true Christians of any sort. So when people say there are a lot of unchristian Christians out there, we know this scandal is not proof against Jesus. He predicted it in his first and most important parable. And when I said this parable gets to the heart of what we want to see here, what I meant was we know all four soils can be in our hearts at different times. But here's what I want us to be about. I want us to be about people who are becoming and being fourth soil people. Because we all have birds in our life, we all have thorns, we all have trials. But I want to be about moving ourselves, moving people into depth, into maturity, into, into faithful and fruitful lives. Death to self, through desirable difficulty, challenging ourselves to a lifestyle of constant, constant repentance. Because this is the most important decision of your life. And it starts again every day. Will it be Jesus' way and death to the self? Or will it be your way? And every day it begins again. We'll talk next week about prognosis, steps for healing. But I don't want to leave us staring at ourselves, focusing on the soil. For what makes the soil fruitful is the seed. And Jesus in verse 18 calls this parable the parable of the sower. Which is odd, isn't it? 
I mean, the whole parable is about the soils, but he entitles it the parable of the sower. Because this parable does present us from the great paradoxes of the Bible. On the one hand, faith is a gift from God. It's completely dependent upon God and God's grace. What God has done in Christ. Not our doing, not our gardening. Jesus is the word of God. He put on a crown of thorns. This poor man cried and the Lord delivered him from all of his fears. He is our surpassing joy. And we can only see this by God's grace. The soil can take no credit. All credit goes to God who saved a wretch like me. But at the same time, Jesus tells us this parable and he warns us because the stakes are so high. And he says, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. But he also says that a branch that does not bear fruit is only fit to be thrown away. So turn your eyes upon the sower. You say, Jesus, help me. I need you, says a healthy person. The Christian life is not just for deep and mature people, thank God. It takes root in a broken, needy heart. But if that seed is real, if that seed is real, over time and gradually, you'll come to hate those thorns. Oh, you will hate those thorns, and you will resist those birds, because you'll see they're suffocating. They're suffocating what is most needful. That's the word of the gospel, breaking open in your heart. So that's what I want us to be, a people who are learning slowly and gradually to meditate deeply and daily upon God's word rigorously rooting out those thorns, relentless about chewing away those birds, always getting back to the gospel. We want to be a community where anyone can begin because the only condition is to know that you are needy. That's the only condition, is to know your need. We want to be attractive to the poor in spirit, but we want to be offensive. We want to be offensive to the seemingly put together because it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle but also a place, also a place where men and women in the midst of a very busy city and frenetic lives, men and women, that's us, who are learning. Over time, we are learning to listen to Jesus. Stand under him. Friends, we don't need smart people. We need deep people. So he who has ears, let him hear. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for us that we would become a community of people who are aware of these thorns, these thorns that are choking out your life and your word, the word of the gospel, that we would, we would come to hate those thorns, even those good things that are distracting us from the most important thing. Lord, I pray we would become a community that challenges, challenges the complacent, that encourages the faint-hearted, that binds up the brokenhearted. Lord, I hope we will hear in this, uh, even in this uh, sad parable, encouragement that you desire and intend that we become faithful and fruitful people, bearing fruit 30, 60, 90, even 100-fold. Lord, would you make it possible? Would you make us people who learn to sit quietly at your feet and listen? to the one who loves us best. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.